0: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning worship the Lord. My mind has been heavily on Jewish customs and traditions lately. If you've been in equipping hour when I've taught, I've been teaching through the feasts. And then in a combination of that with Randy's message last week, um, I believe God brought me to this point um in the jewish wedding so if you would turn to revelation chapter 19 revelation 19 verse 7 he says let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, God, first off, I thank you. I thank you for your blessings. I thank you for the sacrifice that was made for who you are, for what you've done. God, the amazing thing that I am even able to pray to you this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to realize how magnificent, how glorious, and and even how peculiar that is, that the King would hear our prayers. The King of Kings, that the Lord of Lords, that the Creator of all would hear our individual prayers. That is amazing, God. Let us remember that. Let us let us get that. How just how glorious and merciful you are to us, your bride. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I think as I was as I was considering these things, I thought about several different passages of scripture that I think will be better understood if we understand the Jewish wedding and how that works. Because it's quite a bit different than our weddings in America today. Um, They're quite a bit different even than Jewish weddings are today, the the Jewish tradition in the time of Christ. So I want to go through that first first off. I want to kind of go through the whole process of how... Jews would be married. The first thing was the courtship. And actually it was very little courtship. It was much different even than what I would call biblical courting that we have today. It's very much different than what we have as dating in America today or, or a lot a lot of other parts, especially in the West. We have this idea of how a man and a woman come together and they they date and it's this interesting phenomenon that has occurred. To be quite honest, it's sinful in the way that our culture approaches um, dating for the most part. But when we consider from our perspective what was going on in biblical times... Even Christians, when they hear about it, it sounds extremely archaic. It seems like that's terrible. Because we have this idea of this romantic love that we that mostly, I think a large part of it comes from Hollywood, a large part of it comes from our entertainment industry. We have this idea of how this is supposed to happen. And we look back at this and we thought, well, that's just terrible. But the truth is, in its purity in its best i think the romanticism even is better under this jewish system but so so this is kind of how it happened there wasn't dating and and but it wasn't all just like these arranged marriages we think of this like okay this king over here his daughter and he's going to have it mar- marry this king over here's son to bring these two kingdoms together and that those things happened and they still happen even today but that's not the the general sense of the Jewish wedding. The way it generally worked was a young man would set his affection on a young lady. And it it wasn't like he just would just uh, randomly, okay, that one looks good. No, that's not how it happened. Okay, sometimes you can see things in the movies and they think that, okay, this is some kind of arranged marriage. No, he would find qualities who he would want to what he would want in a wife and he would set his affection on this young lady and and then he would and and he would talk with his father about it and they would decide if this was if this was the appropriate one for him to pursue in marriage and when he gathered up a lot of courage as you can imagine it, that that part hasn't changed young men still have to gather up the courage, courage to go do this, the fear of rejection is still there. He would go to this young lady's house and meet with her father and meet with her, and he would take with her a covenant agreement. It was a legal agreement that he would propose this marriage with. A big part of this contract was the price. How much is he willing or how much is he capable of paying to the father for this bride, and you think that sounds terrible, right? In our culture, that sounds incredibly just—it it, just—it's foreign to us, and it sounds bad, but it really wasn't. Okay, you got to remember, in these biblical times, most, uh, a large percentage of the people were farmers. Um, the ones who weren't farmers were probably some sort of other trade, which ex- involved extremely hard labor. So raising daughters. Was somewhat of a liability for a father When he had sons As soon as they're able to put their hand to a plow That's what they did They put their hand to a plow They were in the field They worked hard The young ladies were in the home Learning to care for the home and, And those kind of things But there was not as much profitability From what they were doing So in order to make up for some of that And I understand this Because I have three daughters So I would be I'd be needing to sell them because I'm not getting any profit. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> things are different though now. Even now, things are different because they can help me more, even in labor things. But we have technology. We have things that are. It's a lot different now plowing a field than it was in biblical times. Whenever you put your hand to a plow and you're standing behind a mule or a oxen that's hard work. I've never actually done it, but I can just assure you that's hard work. So things were different. And so it was a liability, but it was also it was more than just it wasn't like he was just purchasing her. The price that he would propose would do a few things. One, it would de- it would show his love for this young lady. I mean, you think it sounds crazy that that the there's this price being paid. But what's crazier, that or some young guy showing up on the doorstep and just taking her? He hasn't proven himself at all. He hasn't proven his love for her. He hasn't proven his intentions with anything long term. He just takes her, right? Which is actually more crazy. So, this price would show his dedication and his love for her, it would also show his readiness. And his intentions, he's not going to show up on a a dad's doorstep with a good sum of money unless he intends to take her as a bride, provide for her, and start his own family. And he's willing to show that with this price. And it would also show his readiness, his ability, right? We have a lot of young people, they want to get married and they want to live on love. Well, it's a great thought. It really is, but you can 't live on love you live you need food, right? You need shelter, and so it shows that he is capable of earning a living and i 've saved this money and here i am so so the contract it 's important to understand that 's how it would happen. He would present this contract and he would so he would show the agreement, and maybe there was negotiations, maybe things would occur, and different for different. People, I'm sure this happened differently, um, and once they arrived at the, the suitable terms, the father agreed. Okay, that's a that is a suitable price. I will let my daughter go if you're willing to pay that. That is enough that you're willing to pay. That I know you will love her. I know that you will care for her. Then I agree. Then they would they would sit down to drink a cup of wine together, and it was called the cup cup of the covenant or the betrothal cup. And the way it would work is they would sit basically across from one another and the groom would present this cup of, of covenant to the bride. So the the agreement's been done by the father, but she still has to agree on it now. And that's something that a lot of times you don't hear of, but this is something that the young ladies wanted. They wanted to be married. And so he would set this cup out in front of her. And you can imagine the anticipation if she took the cup and drank from it, then she agreed to the terms. If she didn't, I guess he's walking back with his head down, right? So he sets the cup, she drinks the cup, and he drinks the cup with her. And and then that that meant the deal was sealed. And this was called a betrothal. They were now like what we would call engaged, except it was actually a binding contract. It was finished. It was, I mean, as far as the agreement goes, they are now, they now belong to one another. And it was customary for the groom to say something like, okay, I've given you this cup and I will not drink of this cup again until we're reunited at the wedding feast. Keep that in mind. And something else to consider is this was not some measly price that he was paying. And it's just like if you heard this morning, there's different levels of wealth, right? But whatever level of wealth you had, this cost was enough to make it costly. The, the, the groom had no delusion of getting something for nothing here. That was not his intention, and that was not ever going to happen. Um, sometimes it was even so costly the groom has set his affection on this young lady. He goes to the father, and the father says, okay, that's not enough. This is, this is what it's going to take, which I can certainly agree with that. Like, uh, no, no, it's going to take more than that, son. And it might even be so much that he has to go home and reevaluate his capabilities. Can I provide that? Am I able to provide this price? He may go home, and it may be somebody. And he may go home and say, "Father, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do this. I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible for me to do this." So the price was a great sum. So keep that in mind. Then once the the price was paid, so once the cup was agreed, the groom would then pay the price, and it was paid for. And that price did a few things. One, um, it helped them. The the money could be used to help to start to gather up her bridal gown, um, her bridal party. And it also guaranteed his return, right? You're not going to pay this big. And a, a standard price at the time was 50 shekels of silver, um, which was a lot of money. You're not going to pay that. You're not going to lay down $2,000 and then just forget about it and not come back, right? You've paid for this and you will be back. And so once the price was paid, the groom would then leave. He would go back to the father's house, to his father's house, and he would begin to build a bridal chamber. And this was for the next step of the marriage, which was the consummation. And many times it would be an addition onto the house. Sometimes if it was a house and they had a a special room, he would go in and he would start to decorate the room. And great pain and pride would be taken in building this bridal chamber. You didn't bring your bride. And it doesn't matter how poor you were or how rich you were. You gave them your best. Men, we can learn a lot from this, I think. No matter what we have or what we don't have, we can give our wives our best. And we can do that for their benefit. And they and they need to know that we're giving them their best. But that's what he would do. And he And he would... I mean, this, is, this was a seven-day chamber. They would go in there for seven days. So not only did he have to build it, decorate it, get it right, but he had to have the provisions in there for seven days. So seven days worth of food and drink inside the bridal chamber. And then, as you can imagine, the tradition was that the father would determine when the son would go back after his bride. You can probably imagine why the 18, 19, 20-year-old young man. <laughs> it's good enough. <laughs> I'm going, no, 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 son. No, that is not good enough. you got a lot to learn. The father who has been through this, more mature, realizes time moves slower. Young people tend to get in a hurry. The older you get, the more you realize we have time. Slow down. Make it right. And when the father agreed that the bridal chamber was ready, he would say, okay, son, now go get your bride. And so that's, that, was, that was the groom's part. So the bride's part, while she waited, and a lot of times it was a, at least a year, sometimes more. Um, her job, first and foremost, was to wait, to wait and watch for the bridegroom. And in the time while she was waiting and watching, she would pre- prepare herself for him. That included her, I think it's pronounced trousseau, which was her wedding dress, her her wedding attire. Not just the dress, but the clothes she would have in the seven days. And whenever she went out of the house, she would wear a veil covering her face. And the purpose of this veil would be that other suitors, anybody else, would know, no, my marriage is not complete yet, but I am betrothed. And I am not available, not even close. Don't, don't even approach me. I have this veil on. I have been, she has been bought with a price. You don't approach her. She would have a lamp prepared with oil ready to go because the tradition was that the, the groom would come steal her away in the middle of the night. Him and his buddies, I, I, I think this is awesome. I think we should go back to this. Him and his buddies would sneak up to her house barge in take her and usually by the time it happened she would have her wedding party there with her as well her bridesmaids or sisters whoever it was and they would take them all and they would steal them away and go back to the father's house where the bride and the groom would go into the wedding chamber or the bridal chamber and so she must have her lamp and oil ready to go because if he comes in the middle of the night and all of the brides and and there's a parable about this we'll get to that in a minute but as you can imagine the terrain around Israel was not easy walking lots of things to run into lots of animals i mean just all kinds of things you had to have light you're going in the middle of the night you don't have light you're not going to be able to make it so she would keep her lamp ready full of oil with extra oil she would have her wick trimmed and ready to go. And um and so that that kind of brings us well we'll 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 get to the parable in Matthew in a minute. So then once they got to the groom's house, the bride and the groom alone would go into the bridal chambers, close the door, and they would be in there for 7 days to consummate the wedding, and that would be actually complete the wedding. They are now no longer bride and groom but husband and wife when they come out of there. The rest of the wedding party's just hanging out, kind of partying it up while they wait. I, I as I study these things in Jewish culture, even in the feasts, and they got a seven-day unleavened bread feast, and they have this, and this will be the last seven days. I think I think our culture we're too fast. Why don't we take the time to do this? I mean, I just really think that God laid these laws out, He laid these feasts out, and He laid all this out with such wisdom, and their traditions and their culture was so much superior to ours in our fast-paced uh, drive-through lifestyle. So this this wedding party was there for seven days, and it kind of helps. That kind of helps to understand. You remember Jesus' first miracle when He turned the water into wine. You can understand how it would be hard to plan for to have enough people. So the the father of the groom here is kind of entertaining them while this is going on. And so there's probably, you know, eating and drinking. And you can imagine the amount of food and wine that would need to be provided. You can see how they would run out. And then they actually ran out, in that case, at the feast whenever everybody's there. So it kind of just kind of helps clear some of those up. Um so that, And then once, once they would come out, the, the husband and the wife would come out of the wedding part, or the bridal chamber, and there would be a big feast, and by that time, news had got around, and all kinds of people had come in to enjoy this feast and celebrate the new couple, the new um, husband and wife. And at that time, she would come out of the bridal chamber, chamber no longer wearing the veil, and it would be revealed who his bride, who his wife is. So, that's a kind of a long story to kind of help understand. I think our position. Um, a few other things to kind of consider. Sometimes the covenant would give the bride a chance at a much better life. Um, they were normal, so she. It wasn't something that they dreaded. This was something that was normal to them, and she got to approve. So so she would be excited. This is not something she would be dreading. She would be excited. Here's the wedding coming up. Just like any young lady who gets excited about her wedding today, it's no different. She would be excited. She would be looking, waiting with anticipation for her groom to come. But can you imagine if that was somebody of great stature who had chosen her? You imagine if she was a pauper, she was poor, and some great landowner sets his affection on her and says, I'm gonna take you out of this poverty and I'm gonna bring you into my my wealth. Can you imagine even more? It's hard to even picture. We we don't understand kings and kingdoms enough. I wish we understood them better, but can you imagine being a poor young lady barely surviving barely having enough your family is struggling to feed all of the kids and the king just sees you one day says i will marry her that will be my wife and he comes and great is the price he can pay it right how much, of the, how much is the anticipation then? You're going from a tent or a bark hut of some kind, and you know when your, when your groom comes this time, he's taking you to the palace. He's taking you to the castle. The bridal chamber will be unlike anything you've ever stepped foot in. How much the anticipation then? So let's take this Jewish wedding now and let's apply it Let's look at it in the way, in the light of Christ and his bride. The first point, the contract. Jesus has set his affection on his bride. He and the Father have set their affection on his bride. Ephesians 1, 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The bride of Christ is the one who he adores. And it, of course, is made up of all believers. All believers make up the bride of Christ. So if you are a believer in Christ this morning This applies to you, God. Jesus has set his affection on you. And he came with this contract. So he set his affection on his bride and he came with the contract. The difference, there is a difference. The price had already been set. The price was already determined by the Father before Jesus came. Now this is the king coming, right? He can determine the price. And actually, if you go back to Genesis 15, you can see the price very clearly when God made his covenant with Abraham. The, the price of whoever broke that covenant was death. And actually, if you go all the way back when Adam transgressed, that's when the price was truly set because the wages of sin is death. The price was the absolute highest price that could be paid. There was no, There is no negotiations on this price. It can't get any higher. It's all. And the willingness of the groom to pay it shows up. And the readiness and capability of the groom for this bride. And so Jesus told his bride of the contract and confirmed it. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 22... There's some dual meaning in these verses. It's incredible. God's providence is just absolutely amazing. His sovereignty. I mean, how you can weave this scripture together so intricately and so perfectly just never ceases to amaze me. In Luke 22, verse 17, it says And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And in verse 18, listen to this, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And this is during the Passover feast. And this is the third cup in the Passover feast, which was called the cup of the covenant. Jesus is taking this cup and he's, inter- he's in- intertwining the feast here which if you was here when I taught on the Passover, you know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the complete fulfillment of the Passover. And now he's, he's making a contract with his bride. Now, of course, we know and, he, and we learn this every time we hear this, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion, that he'd give this cup as remembrance of his blood, which was shed, which was the price And so he guarantees here that he's going to pay the price. And great was the price. So much greater than death. It was more than the death of Christ that was the the cup. It was was the price. It was the wrath of God. It was him bearing the sins of the world and receiving the punishment for those sins. You remember when Jesus was on the cross? He didn't say a whole lot while he was on there. But remember, it comes kind of to the end. And he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our entire salvation hinges on that statement. Because that is the moment when God poured his wrath on the Son. That was the price, which he came with the contract for the bride. That's the price. It was a physical death to his body, yes, but more so, it was a receiving of the punishment of our sins. The wrath, the full wrath, every bit of it was poured out on Christ at that time. And then you remember what he said next. He said, it is finished which is the translation there. If you understand what it meant, that was the statement that they would make when somebody owned, owed a debt, and they would stamp that on there, meant paid in full. And so here we see the double meaning. We know that our sin debt has been paid in full. We hear about that all the time. The sin debt has been paid. We no longer are responsible for it because he received that wrath. But look at this. That was the price that he paid. He had the cup. They shared the cup. They agreed to the, to the contract. And the next step was to pay the price. That was the betrothal price for his bride. That's what he paid. That's our guarantee that he's coming back. And so let's look at the groom's part then. Remember the groom, after he would pay the price, he would go and prepare the bridal chambers. Look at John 14, verse 3. St. John fourteen three. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. That is amazing. Put yourself back in the dirt that that young lady lived in. And the king is coming after her. That's who we are. We couldn't have been any farther from the king. We were the paupers. We were the ones that might get a look at the king from afar off when he comes in. But nobody's letting us get close. We're not worthy. But he set his affection on his bride and he said, that is the one. And he paid the great price and he said, I'm going to prepare. Can you imagine this? He's preparing a bridal chamber fit for a bride of a king. All based on his merit. And the bride's part. And this is where it gets real this is where it meets us right in the face because this is us what was she to do she was to wait and to watch and so if you're a christian this is what we do we should be preparing for him we should be waiting and watching we should be anticipating his return and this is what randy talked about last week and it was it was so i mean god's holy spirit He is the great comforter. Because what he spoke of last week was so much what I needed to hear. It was so much a reminder that this world is not our home. We cannot get attached to it. And I don't know about you, but I am tired. I've seen a a thing floating around the Internet here lately. I think it's a quote from John MacArthur. And I don't remember exactly what it says, but basically I look forward to the return of Christ because I'm tired of fighting against this sin. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of the effects of sin. I'm tired of fighting against sin. I'm tired of seeing others fight against sin. And when he returns, we're watching and waiting. He will set all things right. And we won't have to fight it. And we're we're to wear a veil. The bride of Christ is to be veiled. We are to live a sanctified life. We are to let others know that we are set apart because we have been bought with the price. And this is individual. This is as a group. This is as a collective body. This is you individually. Every other suitor out there should know that we have been spoken for. And trust me, There are other suitors. Are there not? Has Satan come and offered the bride of Christ his great riches, offered great riches and this great happiness? Has he done that? Yeah, he does it on a daily basis. He dangles things in front of us. But listen, he's the father of lies. He can't provide happiness. He can't provide riches only for a time, only for a splinter of a time. Like Nate said this morning, it was a vapor. Those riches that we hold on to, they're nothing but a vapor and they'll be gone. They'll be burned in a fire. He can't, and even if he could, he wouldn't offer the price that has been paid. He cannot even come close. We've been bought by the king. What other suitor can come along that's going to top that? Other humans will come. Our fellow man, they'll come with promises of contracts. Enemies of the king will show up for nothing but to try to lure his bride away. Just to attack him. Just to get to him. So be aware. Be aware put your veil on let everyone know that you are bought with a price and act like you're bought with a price don't don't even deal in those temptations of the suitors trying to lure you away and the final thing the bride should do is to have her lamp ready and turn to Matthew Matthew 25. If you you didn't know the tradition of the Jewish wedding before and you've read this, I really, really hope that this will clear this up a little bit. It will help us understand this parable. Matthew 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil and with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be... I've heard that preached wrong, and I've heard it preached right. But I think understanding the Jewish wedding, it helps us to understand this easier. The wedding party of the bride, were simply waiting for the bridegroom as we the church are today. We're waiting, we're watching. They're in that period where the betrothal period has been made, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. Now, the ten virgins have represented many different things and many different messages, but I believe they're representing mankind in general. And the oil in the lamps, the oil so much throughout the Old Testament represents the Holy Spirit. You read of the tabernacle, you read even of of some of the, the different things that have happened. The oil was what brings forth the light. It magnifies, it creates the light and and... So the oil represents the Holy Spirit here. So the, here's, here's the bottom line. I'm, and I don't, I'm not going to exposit this entire passage. But the bottom line is the wise in this parable have the Holy Spirit and the foolish don't. It has nothing to do with their working towards something which has been the way this has been taught a lot of times. But the wives, I mean, doesn't that line up with Scripture? Doesn't the Scripture say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord? Those who believe in the Lord are wise. They've got the beginning of wisdom, and then they grow in wisdom because of the Holy Spirit. The Bible also says the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. And I don't care how intelligent the person is, how big his brain or her brain is, is if she says in her heart, there is no God, she is foolish. And I don't care how simple-minded somebody is, if they've believed on Christ, they have wisdom. That's what the Bible teaches us, and I think that's what we see here. But, it's, but, but some of them, the, the foolish ones, they were part of the wedding party, Right? It appeared that they had light from their lamps. They had a lamp. And when, standing, when when a lamp's right by another lamp, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly which one's putting off the light. But they didn't have oil. Don't we see a lot of empty lamps today? Aren't there a lot of empty lamps, a lot of people claiming to be part of the, part of the wedding party? claiming to know the groom. But the truth is they really just want to attend the wedding feast and they don't care anything about the groom. We have a lot of that today. The question is, are you one of them? Are you one that is all about the feast, all about the place where we're going, all about the, or maybe you're all about just being part of the bridal bridal party? But when it comes down to the wedding, you're not really about the groom. Or have you truly repented? Have you truly been born again? Because when you are truly born again, the Holy Spirit enters into you. And He directs your path. And you do put off light. A lamp with with oil in it will put off light. Or are you trying to add to the wedding contract? The contract's already been set. But are you trying to say, well... I'm going to please the king with this and that and with my works, my actions. Or are you trusting in the dowry of the bridegroom? It's essential that we answer these questions because it's quite obvious if you are not ready when the groom returns, it will be too late. If you don't have the Holy Spirit when he returns, it will be too late. There at the end, verse 12, but he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. They did not know Christ. They did not have him. And it says, Watch, therefore you know neither the day nor the hour. And it's an amazing thing. The wedding tradition of the Old Testament, the times of Christ and before, they had this tradition that the groom would come steal away his bride in the, in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night. They did not even know why, but it was in place providentially that that would be a picture of Christ returning for his church, Christ returning for his bride. He will steal, steal her away in the middle of the night. It is not known the time or the hour. We cannot know. It will be today. It'll be right now. That's how much time you're going to have to prepare. That's why you must be prepared. You must examine yourself and see that you're in the faith so that you're not standing outside the wedding party knocking, trying to get in. And so now let's consider the completion. Once the bridegroom returns and receives his bride... There will be a great feast in heaven as a celebration that the bride and the bridegroom are reunited and will live so for eternity. That's what it says back in Revelation 19. He says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And that's our job. That's what we should be doing. We should be presenting ourselves, working towards presenting ourselves worthy to the king, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You know, you notice something there? It was granted to her to provide herself. Everything we do to prepare ourselves is coming from him. That's how poor we were and how rich he is. And it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Those deeds that the saints have done since Christ came, came and made this contract have clothed His bride. All of those righteous deeds, all the heroes in the faith that we like to read about, all of the heroes in the faith that we like to listen to and read today, the the people that are dying in Islamic countries right now for the name of Christ, it is not forgotten. It is clothing His bride. It is preparing His bride. And whenever this wedding occurs when this feast is complete it will be magnified and it will glorify the king and then at the end it says and the angel said write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and that's so that's the occurrence so you can picture it now we're waiting we're watching we're preparing he comes and he gets his church and he brings us to the bridal chamber And then we'll drink that cup. We'll drink that final cup with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there will be a great feast. And it will be complete. I don't know about you. But I'm ready for that. I can truly say. And God help me to stay with this mindset. I can truly say with John at the end of Revelation. Even so come Lord Jesus. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you wanting? Are you looking? I'm tired of this. Whatever it is that you think you want to hold on to see, it will be so much better at the foot of Christ. And then one other thing to consider. As as I talked about the other suitors who would be coming... Can you imagine this in in reality? uh, A young lady who the king has set his affection on. And these other people, these other men are trying to lure her away. Maybe it's his enemies. Maybe it's just some foolish guy. Some evil guy. Whatever it is. Can you imagine the king's reaction when he shows up? How he's going to deal with those Who she clearly had the veil on, and they clearly pursued her anyway. You're going to see another side of that king. We've seen the glorious, merciful side who has put his affection on the bride and has paid the ultimate price for her, the highest price, and even died on a cross. When he comes back, he's not the lamb. He's not coming back as the lamb this time, he's coming back as the king. And he will deal with those suitors. Revelation 19, verse 1, he says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. And it says, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God will deal with this people. He will deal with this evil and corrupt generation, the ones who are Tempting his bride, the ones who are trying to lure his bride, the ones who are persecuting his bride, make no mistake, will be dealt with and dealt with harshly. They will not go unpunished. So you can make that as the temptations come. Consider that. Consider oh you're not gonna be around you're not gonna want to be around when the king returns. I've been bought with a price. And he will deal with you. No matter how treacherous it gets here, he will come back. He will return. And he will deal with that. And so it is definitely true today. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father. God, I, I just cannot give you enough praise for your affection I cannot give you enough praise for the contract the covenant that you have given to your bride how amazing how amazing God set it in my heart help me to understand the magnitude of what you have done what you are doing And remind me, Lord, remind me of my veil. Remind us, your bride, of our veil, which must remain in place. And God, and of of the price, the great price which was paid, and remind us of that great return that we get to have with you. The feast that will set and all things will be made right. God, we won't have to fight this sin any longer. We won't have to fight the effects, the pains, the deaths, the diseases. It will all be gone. And we'll just bask in your glory for eternity. I pray, God, that if there's any here who appear to be a lamp with no oil, God, that you would set your affection on them. You would bring them to yourself. You would... Bring them in under this contract. They would become part of your bride so that they would be invited to the wedding feast. Lord, touch their hearts. Send your Holy Spirit. Indwell their hearts. Change them. God, call. Bring them in. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.